Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without you. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between the festival's Neil Wilson and Clayton Thomas Mueller. Clay is a member of the Treaty 6 Cree Nation, located in northern Manitoba. He's a campaigner for 350.org, a global movement that's responding to the climate crisis. He's campaigned on behalf of Indigenous peoples around the world for more than 20 years, and he's the author of a best-selling new book, Life in the City of Dirty Water, a Memoir of Healing. This is a story that examines and calls out systemic racism, white supremacy, and settler colonialism. Life in the City of Dirty Water ultimately asks us a foundational and hugely important question. What is it actually going to take for us to heal from the violence of colonialism. Here's their conversation. Clay, it's certainly unwise to judge a book by its cover, but the cover of your memoir is by Christy Belcourt, an award-winning Métis artist, author, and activist, and it's called Our Lives Are in the Land. And I, I just must have to share this with you. It's one of the most beautiful covers I've ever seen because it's not only stunning in its colorful depth, but also speaks of creation in all her majesty and sacredness. From the waters, the lands, and the stars, we behold the universe in all her glory. And of course, the cover speaks uh, powerfully about some of the foundational themes running through your book, your long journey to reconnect with Mother Earth, traditional knowledge, the circle of life, ceremony, dignity instead of pride, Sundance, and the prophecies. So there's just an amazing synergy between the art and the text. Could you comment on that for us? Yeah, well, you know, Christy Belcourt and Isaac Murdoch, um, another artist that that she works very closely with on um, their cultural camps initiative, in, uh, in, 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 you know, what, what is now called Southern Ontario, um, you know, they've been literally painting the movement of climate justice for a number of years now. And I had the opportunity to collaborate with them during Standing Rock, um, where they brought a vision, you know, that included both, you know, Christie's paintings of the universe and 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 also fish (laughs) fish fish swimming in rivers it seems so simple and isaac brought his image um which which is this this iconic image of uh thunderbird woman um and you know that 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 image of this woman with with wings you know she's a thunder being you know that that spirit has been literally the representation of the climate justice movement for many, um, not just here in North America, what we call Turtle Island, but across Mother Earth um, during this time where we're trying to end the era of big oil. And, uh, you know, we had a protest here in Winnipeg a number of years ago against the Energy East pipeline. And I, I set up a, 
a workshop with my dear friend and mentor, Dave Solnit, the younger brother of journalist Rebecca Solnit. Mm-hmm. He's this incredible artist. Um, and Christy and Isaac came to the art build. You know, we were, we were bringing a totem pole from the West Coast to place in the path of the Energy East pipeline to stop it. And um, they heard about it and they came to the art build and, you know, we, they gave permission to use their art, um, you know, for this, 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 this statement that we were making against the government and against big oil. And uh, we won that campaign, you know, and that totem pole to this day, uh, you know, sits at Dave Crescane's lodge outside of Winnipeg and Saguin First Nation. And uh, since then, you know, they have gone on to, collaborate with, 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 with hundreds of protests and uh, demonstrations and their art, you know, has literally, you know, been the, 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 the thing, the, the representation of, of, I don't want to say resistance or protest because that's not what indigenous peoples are doing when we stand in front of people trying to cut our forests down or pollute our rivers or drill for oil in our lands. Um, we're land defenders, we're water protectors, we have responsibilities, you know. Uh, I think in the Western context, you know, people like to say that we have rights, but, you know, to quote a good friend of mine, former chief Yvonne Peter from Alaska, he says, yes, we have rights, obviously, but I like to say instead we've been given responsibilities or original instructions. <laughs> and so, you know, her her vision is, is has crossed all... all uh, boundaries and borders. I mean, you know, the great fashion houses of Italy are using her vision for their prints. Um, you know, she's, she's, she's just a really incredible individual and also has such a kind heart. And I feel very humbled that she allowed me to use some of her vision um, as part of this story that I'm sharing about being Indigenous and growing up in an inner uh, city community here in these lands that they call Canada. Oh, that's 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 wonderful because the art is, is is absolutely stunning, and the more you look at it, of course, the more you see these symbols and um, these uh, icons. And then, of course, when you you open the book to the table of contents, you know you're captivated by the Cree language and the names of the five chapters. The syllabics, you know, they're strong, like they were chiseled in stone. I've never seen that kind of uh, syllabic before. Uh, So can you speak about the Cree language and how you decided to compose your memoir in five sections or chapters? Well, (laughs) I mean, originally it was, it was far more chapters, but uh, you know, I, I, you know, Penguin has, has their, their vision as well. And, you know, and I love, the fact that they gave me the opportunity to use their platform to get the book out, you know, shout out to Penguin. Um, But, you know, the reason why we, we, we collected all these stories um, and and gave them Cree type, you know, gave the chapters Cree um, headings and use the language as bass, as, as, as you have to think about the chapter headings and the Cree language as baskets, because it's a statement. Mm. And, you know, the process of writing this book, was you know it, it was difficult you know when, I, when about seven years ago I, I I found myself as a father having a really really hard time um, 
doing the day-to-day things a father does with their sons. You know, my boys were, were four and six at the time. I think we were living in the capital in Ottawa here in Canada. And, um, you know, um, I, I was, I found myself disassociating when I play with them or when we would try to do homework or, you know, when we're eating supper together, I'd go into autopilot and, you know, I'm, I'm a very big believer in therapy, you know, like given my past and also given the work that I do, you know, going on missions all over the planet to fight evil people and corporations. Um, you know, I, I, I go to therapy. So I was talking to my therapist at the time and, uh, and I asked him, I said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I, I, I find myself having a hard time doing these day-to-day basic things with my kids. And what he told me is he said, well, you know, it's very common for residential school survivors or the children of residential school survivors to, you know, uh, uh, express um, behavioral patterns, uh, including disassociation. Um, when they're dealing with the kids, because you see and have mirrored back to you the experiences you went to at that age when you're engaging your children. And it can trigger your flight or fight thing in your mind. And uh, that that causes disassociation. Uh, You know, you blank out, you know, you can't connect on an emotional level. And I said, well, gosh, what do I do about that? You know, because I want to be as present as I can for my boys, you know, I want, I want to experience every moment I can with them. You know, I never had that growing up. I want to be the best dad ever. What do I do? And he said, well, you know, exercise, you know, eat good food and go to ceremonies, keep going to sweat lodge and um, keep coming to therapy and, you know, maybe write about it, you know, that might help. And so, you know, I wrote a book, um, Um, but it was too fucked up to publish. And so, you know, at the time, um, you know, I was working with my, you know, good friend, Spencer Mann, who's the co-director of the film Life in the City of Dirty Water, which people can watch on CBC Gem, um, you know, because the book is part of a much larger three-dimensional storytelling, you know, universe. It's, you know, this massive transmedia project, you know, which is Mm. a film, 40 video vignettes, podcasts, um, uh, photo essays with audio bridges on them. And when the ebook comes out, people will have a very different experience than just reading the hardcover, you know, that's, that's down the road though. But the point is, is that, uh, you know, I talked to him and I said, Hey man, you know, like, why don't I raise a couple bucks and, um, I'll pay you, I'll pay you for your extra time, you know, cause we travel the world and we make videos for the movement, right. You know, those videos mm-hmm. you see on social media and, you know, get involved in this, or this happened. And, you know, they're two to three minute, you know, powerful videos. And, and uh, so we're always on the road together. And he's like, yeah, man, that sounds like a really cool project. And I was like, yeah, so just record me, you know, when we're done recording the protest or whatever, done doing the interviews of these frontline land defenders and water defenders, you know, we can book off in the morning or in the evening and you can just record me talking about what it's like to be native and grow up in an inner city and in a settler colonial state like Canada. And he was like, yeah, man, that sounds so cool. So we did that over a period of two years. And I brought him here to Winnipeg for a couple of recording sessions. And, you know, we did, hundreds of hours of, 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 of storytelling and, um, um, you know, captured on, 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 on really high quality video and audio. And, um, 
you know, when, when we finished the project, you know, we, we put the audio through Google voice to text and it spit out the manuscript and, you know, and, 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 and then we edited that text into the book that is coming out on August 24th. And the reason I share this is because, you know, linguists refer to indigenous peoples in our language as um, polyamorphic. We, in other words, we don't have a written language, you know, the syllabics that you refer to were actually, you know, brought in by a Jesuit, a priest, a Catholic priest, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I believe they were rejected by the Anishinaabe and the Crees, you know, we, we took it and learned it, I think in a couple of days and used wow. it as a way of, 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 you know, just, just as another tool in our toolbox. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I felt good about that, though, that, that this book was wrote in the style of uh, oration, you know, the, the art form of storytelling, like of speaking. And, um, you know, and we use technology to take that oration and to put it into text. And then that is the book that uh, people are going to experience um, should they decide to go on the journey and, and pick up a copy and, and you know, read it. This is a journey, of course, that you uh, embarked upon, but I'm so touched that you're including the white man, the settler, the, 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 the people, the governments, the institutions that really, you know, performed genocide. Was it, you know, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's not just trauma. It's genocide. So how did you and when did you come to the understanding, the very deep, heartfelt understanding that in order for us as a planet, as a humanity to heal, we have to get together in a very real way? Well, you know, rinse and repeat, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how many conversations, I don't know how many white people I've had to train to be good allies, to be accomplices and tearing down white patriarchy and systemic racism and white supremacy and um, settler colonialism, you know, and then, and then they have kids and or they get a better job, you know, something more high paying so they can take better care of their kids <laughs> and, and then they move on. And then you get the, you get the new white person that comes into the circle and they have the same assumptions and ideas as, as the, as the, as the, as, as the good ally that's leaving and uh, that they had when they, when they first started. And then, so you got to relive as a Brown or black person, as an indigenous person, all the same experience of, of teaching an ignorant person, um, you know, an unlearned person, um, how to, you know, how to not engage your community and re-traumatize them, you know, and that's a very arduous and tedious task and, it, and it's, it's soul sucking. Um, and so, you know, life in the city of dirty water poses the question to the world, what is it actually going to take for us to heal from the violence of colonialism? And that's not just for native folks. That's, that's, that's for all of us, you know, because especially right now in this hyper-polarized political landscape with thousands of children finally coming home, um, 
with the ongoing um, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls scandal. So forgive me, I get a little emotional when I talk about these things, but, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, and the ongoing extractivism that happens, not just in the, in the, in, in, you know, in Canada's industrial sector, as far as tar sands and, you know, forestry and fisheries and all the, all the things that, you know, the current economic paradigm is extracting from native land and water, but also in media and storytelling and, and you know, and, 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 you know, the way that, you know, white intermediaries have, 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 have been talking for us as indigenous peoples for a long time now. Mm. And I feel like that, that time, that era has come to an end. And we see that, with, you know, in television with shows like reservation dogs and uh, you know, with standing rock, you know, in the multi-million dollar media apparatus that indigenous peoples built up to tell the story of what was happening during standing rock, you know, there they were blowing CNN and, you know, Fox News and CBC and CTV, like, like all the major outlets, media, corporate media out of the water as far as views, um, you know, with, with what they were doing with social media, new media. And, and so, you know, you know, this, this book, you know, aims to, to, to add to the incredible work that is already happening as far as far as shifting the discourse, you know, and, and really getting to the nitty gritty of the, of, of this conversation, you know, what it's going to take for us to like close the gap to, you know, come together in a moment where we face unprecedented existential crisis, you know, the COVID pandemic, you know, uh, economic recession on a global scale that we've never seen. And of course the climate emergency, um, you know, we've got to get together. We've got to figure things out and stop othering each other and start belonging each other, to quote John Powell. As land defenders, um, you have knowledge that, you know, the colonial capitalist system doesn't have a clue about, it seems to me. Or we're just beginning to understand that if we could get off our high horse and you know, meet you halfway, we might be able to solve this crisis without going down the road to hell. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, science tells us that we have seven years to wean the planet off of its fossil fuel addiction. Um, you know, it's not native people or environmentalists or, you know, eco-extremists, eco-fascists that are saying, shut down big oil, stop the tar sands here in Canada, stop these pipelines like the Trans Mountain. It's the International Panel on Climate Change, you know, the top 98% of the scientists across the planet that are saying that. It's the international agency, one of the most conservative um you know, uh, agencies on the planet, you know, a former really close uh, snag of the Canadian government and its policies on climate um, and, and, and energy development. Um, you know, it's, it's Canada's own environmental regulators that are saying that we can't continue this current trajectory we're on as far as how our economy is set up on the backs of Indigenous peoples, you know, when we look at Canada and we, 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 we lay a map out of all the native communities, all the Inuit 
hamlets, uh, you know, Métis settlements, you know, 600 plus First Nations. And we overlay that map with all of Canada's most destructive and toxic industries, you know, the, the things that are really fueling the climate crisis, the climate emergency, you'll see that all those things are happening adjacent to these communities. And that the majority of Canadians live within 50 kilometers of the U.S.-Canada medicine line. And so environmental racism in this country is very much a red and white issue. You know, don't get me wrong. There's poor white communities and poor black and brown communities in this country that experience environmental injustice. Um, but, But disproportionately, Indigenous peoples have paid a tremendous price um, so that people, you know, who have wealth, um, you know, um, can live comfortable lives. And, um, you know, that is, that is going to change. Um, you know, it's going to change and it's going to change real fast. Because as we see with this unprecedented wildfire season, um, it's not just you know, the native communities tucked away under the carpet, you know, experiencing this, you know, entire municipalities at this point are being burnt to the ground because of the lack of political will of the decision makers. And so, you know, we have to have an open conversation about this. And I think, you know, just furthermore on the point, that question about how do we deal with the violence of colonialism is also a conversation between men. And the, 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 the disproportionate power imbalance between man and women and patriarchy, um, especially white patriarchy. And, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, in the native community, you know, a lot of our fathers have been absent because they had their role taken away because of the residential school experiment, residential school <coughs> policy of genocide, you know, for, a lot of people think this is like a long time ago, but, you know, it, it was just 1969, you know, it was, was, you know, up until then you had to get permission from the Indian agent just to leave the reserve, you know, South Africa's uh, Bindustan system of, of, of apartheid was based on Canada's reservation system, um, you know, a system of ra- racial segregation, white supremacy. And, um, and so, you know, Men, Native men, you know, continue to be represented in the highest rates of incarceration, of suicide, um, you know, of all the negative statistics. And so my aim, you know, aside from bringing together people to have these hard conversations and to add to the conversations that are already happening, um, is to reach out to my fellow Native brother and to say, you know, let's go, you know, no matter how messy it is, you know. Let's 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 have these conversations about what it's going to take for us to heal, um, so that we can be there for our our our, our children. Now, Clay, you're we know you as an internationally acclaimed climate justice activist and a climate specialist with Three Fifty Org. Do you see a time when people generally will become so fed up? with the inaction of the leadership in most of these institutions and and political parties, do you see it becoming a very powerful on-the-street social uh, upheaval? Uh, How do you see the future if we've only got six or seven years? Well, you know, I play a very small role 
you know, I'm one of those those people in the background that that support the real the real land defenders and water protectors that are on the front line. You know, a lot of the work I do is is just doing media and helping people tell their stories and raising funds. Um, you know, providing tools so that people can organize efficiently and um, you know, and, and instead of having static power, you know, turning that power into a lightning bolt focused on a target. Um, <clears throat> And, um, you know, 350.org um, and the work that we do, you know, has, has been very much all about that for the last couple of years anyways. And, um, you know, my, my, my team here in Canada, you know, our, our focus has been targeted on stopping the expansion of the Alberta tar sands and its associated pipeline and shipping and refinery infrastructure across the continent. And, you know... Um, but it's the communities like Athabasca Chippewan First Nation and, you know, Miccosukee Cree First Nation, and, you know, um, you know, so many others um, that have, have been the ones that have really, you know, taken the fight, um, you know, to the decision makers. Um, and, you know, as far as social movements, you know, we're all a part uh, myself individually, 350.org, and these 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 communities, which are majority First Nations and Native American nations, um, um, but also you know people of color communities and places like Port Arthur, Houston, where they have the refinery complexes um, that are equipped to refine tar sands. You know, um, you know, uh, you know. It, it, it's, 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 it's a lot of folks that are involved in this, this, this project to build the world's largest social movement in the history of humankind to deal with the existential crisis, the global triple threat that I, I talked about earlier, you know, the, the COVID pandemic, the economic recession, and the existential threat of the climate emergency. And, you know, um, for me, it's, we're already there. I mean, right before the COVID shutdown here in Canada, everybody remembers a million children marching on September 27th when Greta Thunberg came to Canada. You know, there were half a million people, that children that marched in Montreal. I mean, 20,000 people here in Winnipeg, in my little city. You know, and I was right there with my, my, my teenage boy and my, 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 uh, my uh, other younger boy, Jackson. You know, and uh, had the honor to speak at that that rally on the on the legislative steps here in Winnipeg, and march with my boys through the streets of Winnipeg. And, oh, awesome! You know, and, awesome. and I was touched. I remember I was like I was like hyping up the crowd from the steps of the ledge, and there's school bus after school bus. It felt like something from the civil rights movement in the '60s. And getting off the school bus were these little kids. Like <laughs> there were some kids who were so small that they had to get off the final step of the school bus, like backwards, like a ladder, because they were just little tiny kids. And they had signs that said, Trudeau, stop the pipeline, you know, shut down Trans Mountain, you know, um, you know, all these things. And, uh, you know, it reminded me of the civil rights movement, you know, because it wasn't, you know, I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King and all those people you know, they got their heads bashed in by the police state. And it wasn't until the children came to the front line that, you know, the white liberal guilt of the, of the Northeast U.S., you know, the people that were funding the civil rights movement, they were like, hold on a second here. Police can't be like messing with children. 
And there was a fundamental shift in the Overton window of what was possible. And we're seeing children out there on the, you know, going out on the front line now. There's children at the Wet'suwet'en camp fighting the coastal gasoline pipeline. There's children in the Blue Mountain watershed at the Tiny House Warriors fighting the Trans Mountain pipeline. Um, you know, like, like it's, it's, it's a very incredible moment that we're living in. And uh, it's also a very scary moment. And we need everybody, um, you know, to, to step forward and, and to support these brave land and water protectors. Well, you know, Clay, today, um, August the 20th, three years ago, Greta Thunberg set out on this very day. She was one young girl, grade mm -hmm. nine, I think. And she's on the spectrum. And uh, she sat there three years later, millions, as you just said, millions of, of children and youth have been putting their lives on the line. And we just hear today from UNICEF that there are, what did they say, one billion children around the world that are in grave danger of this catastrophe. One billion children. And you mention in your book, you know, you, you talk about um, the coming transference of, of economic power, consumer power, and that 75% of Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people are under the age of 30, 55% are under the age of 25. So this speaks to your optimism, your hope that these kids might be able to do what, you know, us old timers have helped with, but weren't able to cross the finish line with. You know, it's, you know, I, I, I'm not an old timer necessarily yet. Um, that's what the old timers keep telling me. But uh, <laughs> I guess I'm talking about myself then. But you're approaching middle age. But I'm 44. Yeah. You know, I'm not a kid anymore, you know, and I have teenage sons. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, I was married for 27 years, so I have a bit of experience mm -hmm. and the world that I'm seeing being born right now is nothing I could have ever imagined. You know, one of the, one of the statistics that really struck me, you know, I, I got married in the Bay area in Oakland and I live close to Berkeley and, uh, you know, I, I believe Berkeley High is the largest high school in the United States. Wow. Um, they got something like 10,000 kids on their campus. And um, a couple of years ago, they did a, a, a like a census. And I think it was like 80, 86% of those children, um, you know, check marked uh, non-binary. They didn't identify with a, a gender, female or male. And, you know, <clears throat> My own son, uh, my son Jack, he, you know, he's often schooling me on 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 um, this whole thing, um, you know, this kind of revolution that's happening with young people, and it's a it's a response to toxic patriarchy, you know, it's a response to this like toxic masculinity that exists um, throughout our society, our media, but also our industry, our economy you know, of what it means to be successful. And, 
what it means to be happy. You know, how do you measure happiness? You know, and it's rooted in this like really fucked up thing. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I see, you know, this, 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 like I said, there's this generation um, that is inheriting, you know, the most, the most oppressed, marginalized, dispossessed, incarcerated sector of our population here in these lands that they call Canada is going to represent 25 cents of every dollar in the GDP in the years to come. <clears throat> there are more native babies being born than any other segment of our society, you know? Um, and, and, and that is a very interesting thing to think about when you think about the ripples in the pond that and the ramifications of that kind of economic force, you know, there's a lot of my mentors who in latter years, you know, I went to, I, I had to go to, I had to fight them, you know, um, but I didn't not believe in the teachings they gave me, you know, whether it was Phil Fontaine or Ovid Mekrity or Matthew Kuhncum, you know, these, these great, great chiefs of modern era, you know, they always said the same thing that economic self-sufficiency is the pathway to community self-determination. The only problem I had with that teaching was that we don't have to destroy our rivers, our forests, and the, the relatives that we have in the natural world to attain that. We have the technology to provide energy for our communities, to provide fresh water for you know, sanitation, you know, for all the things. We can grow food, even in the extreme Arctic. We can grow vegetables with the technology that we have today. And we don't need, you know, to, to drill for oil or to have the biggest open pit diamond or gold mines or rare earth mineral mines and silica mines um, moving into this new economic paradigm. There are ways to do this stuff um, in a way that, you know, ensures that we continue to meet our responsibilities to the ecosystem, to the circle of life, um, you know, and, and, and that's something that I, 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 you know, moving forward into this next half of my life, you know, I hope to live another 40 years if, you know, creator willing. Um, but that's what I'm going to work on, you know, is, is how do we feed our people? How do we have fresh water? How do we make sure that these kids that are being born can pick berries in the meadow and go out with their uncles, you know, on the boat and pull the net and get fish and go out in the fall and, you know, get that, get that young bull moose and feed their family for the winter. You know, that's what I'm going to, going to focus on, you know, now that I'm, now that I'm getting a little bit too old to be flying all over the damn world and, you know, being, being in the protests and all that, eh? I might still get arrested a few more times yet, but, you know. <laughs> Clay, would you say that life in the city of dirty water is a, is a love song to Winnipeg? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you really, you know, you suffered in, in, in the city of dirty water, but you came of age. You, you really, your, your spirit seemed to come out from what I've read. And you now seem to be committed to, you know, playing a role in making Winnipeg the hub or a hub that it used to be when the trains, you know, and the, the country was coming together. 
Well, you know, my, my, my good friend and colleague, Adrian Marie Brown, you know, she's an incredible author. She's written many books. You know, she, she, uh, um, what was that uh, sci-fi author, Octavia Butler? That's her hero. Okay. And, um, and she's a, a black writer, you know, a black science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And Octavia Butler, Adrian always quotes her and she says that activists, organizers are the ultimate science fiction writers because we're constantly in a state of having to dream about the future and another possibility of what that future could be. And uh, so we're always writing sci-fi, you know, in our minds. <laughs> and, and you know, I, it, it's interesting that you, that you caught that, you know, Winnipeg being a train city and, you know, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the beginning of the largest migration in the history of humankind because of rising sea levels and where cities happen to be, like L.A. and Vancouver and New York and, you know, um, all these coastal cities, you know, Bangladesh, you know, Sri Lanka, like, you know, like, you know, we look small island nations, you know, um, there's a migration that's happening. And so, you know, I see Winnipeg and, and, and the future of trains, um, you know, and the transition off of fossil fuel centered transport economies to, you know, um, you know, electrified transportation. Um, you know, I, I see Winnipeg becoming very much um, the new New York of, of North America, you know, um, in the future, you know, 100 years from now, you know, maybe even sooner. Um, yeah, I, I even wrote a whole book about that. That's that's sitting in, on the back burner. <laughs> Let's get that out. You know, this is a, a literary festival. So maybe we could end this uh, with you, if you wouldn't mind reading from uh, the, the very opening chapter or session called flight. And if you, you would say the Cree word before you begin, that would be huge. Thank you. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. <clears throat> I do want to say that this book is dedicated to my, uh, my cousin and brother, uh, Charlton Edward Budd, <clears throat> who, who taught me how to hustle. He taught me how to survive. And I can't wait. To, well, you know, I'm patient. You know, I got responsibilities still here on Mother Earth, but... I can't wait to see him in the good hunting grounds. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's one of those, uh, one of those uh, oil sands workers that, that, that um, took his own life um, when things got, got hard, you know, and my, my heart goes out to everybody affected by uh, suicide. So here we go. That to see you in flight. <clears throat> The first time my father saw an airplane, he thought it must be an angel. He was five years old, standing outside his family's cabin deep in the bush on Pugatawagan First Nation in northern Manitoba. It was before he attended residential school, but Catholicism was already very present in the community, and he heard about angels from the priests who lived on the res. That day, he heard a strange noise and he looked up. He saw a white cross flying through the sky. And he thought, 
this must be an angel because what else could it be? He told me that story many years later. We were at the St. Regis Hotel in Winnipeg and he was drunk out of his tree. It was one of a half a dozen times I ever spent with him. Even though I was only seven at the time, hearing the story triggered something inside of me. I now know that unsettled feeling I had was the sudden understanding that I'm only one generation away from living in the bush and being of the land. I'm only one lifetime. In only one lifetime, everything had changed. My father, Peter Sinclair Sr., was a Cree bushman and a miner. He worked for the railroad. He was also an advisor to political leaders and a writer and a bureaucrat. He was from Pugatawagan First Nation, the easternmost First Nation in our territory, Treaty 6, which spans Saskatchewan and into Alberta. My family is spread out over a vast region from Pelican Narrows to Sandy Bay, a Métis settlement in northern Saskatchewan, through South Indian Lake and Nelson House, Manitoba, where my mother's father comes from, with Pugatawagan right in the middle of it all. These are all the territories of the Swampy Cree people, or the Rocky Cree as we call ourselves. My father was actually half Cree. His father, Kino, born Albert Dubois de Voiland, was a full-blooded Belgian immigrant who was a World War II fighter pilot and a war hero. My grandfather became disillusioned with his aristocratic life and jumped on a steamship after the war. He went to Hudson Bay and got on a dog sled and went into the bush. He met a woman who became his wife, and they created my father. My grandfather was famous in our community of Pugatawagan. He and my grandmother owned and operated a general store. He had a Clydesdale horse way up in northern Manitoba. And he built a root cellar so he could have vegetables in the wintertime. That just blew all the Indians away. My father drank himself to death at the age of 58. I don't know why he drank, but the limited stories he told me about himself gave me a glimpse. Watching his father die of a heart attack in the general store, being raped by a nun throughout his whole time in residential school. The last time I saw my father was at the Seven Oaks General Hospital in Winnipeg. He still had jet black hair and big bushy black eyebrows, sort of a kind of look, a bit of a crooked smile. But he was all swollen and yellow with jaundice. The late stages of cirrhosis had kicked in. The last thing he said to me was, Ah, Clayton, always so serious. I'm sorry I haven't been a good dad. Take care of your kids. Make some money so that when you're dead, they'll have something. I said, Okay, Dad. I'll do that. And I left. I was 26 years old. A couple of weeks later, I flew back to Winnipeg to bury him. As I sat on the plane, I thought back to my father's memory of the first plane he saw. And here I was sitting in one of those white crosses in the sky on my way to bury him. 
After the funeral, I drove with the procession to the paw for the second funeral, with my dad's body in a coffin in the back of a pickup leading the way. I slept beside his body at the funeral parlor in a Pasquiac cremation, and then my siblings brought him to our trapline for his third and final funeral service, burying him beside our grandmother. His spirit sat with me for the drive back to Winnipeg, the whole way down Highway 6, and we laughed about all the things we did not get to work out while he was alive. I didn't really know my dad, but I was always thankful to him for giving me life. I never hated him for being a drunk and for not achieving his potential. He had been a very handsome, intelligent... He, he had been a very handsome man intelligent and articulate. People I've talked to from his generation told me that they thought he was going to be the one to lead our people. From my father, I have 11 brothers and six sisters from Alaska to New York and all the way to Brazil. I know a few of them and we all have different moms. All my dad's children took his death differently. Some got angry some didn't come to the funeral. Some were so drunk that they were barely there. Some fought over my dad's earthly possessions, and he didn't have much. The only thing I inherited from my father was the sports coat he had on when he was admitted into the hospital before he died. It still had his blood all over the front of it from him puking it up. What I really wanted was photos. I have only one or two of my dad. And he was pretty hammered in them. I don't have any pictures of him looking dignified. Thank you. Yeah. Thank oh. you. Thank you. What a, what a powerful introduction. And there's 230 more pages of, of you know, page-turning narrative. And I'm so happy that you were on to read this part because it's such a gentle, beautiful way of taking us on your healing and journey of responsibility. Thank you so much, Clay. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, big shout out to everybody participating in the festival. I wish I could be there. Um, you know, maybe down the road, COVID willing, that will happen. That was the festival's Neil Wilson in conversation with Clayton Thomas Mueller about his best-selling memoir, Life in the City of Dirty Water. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. The only thing better than buying a great book is buying one from a great independent bookseller. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is your program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.